Lord, we give this time to you, God, and, and we ask that you would stir hearts, that you would change us from the inside out, that your spirit would move in power. Lord, as we discuss grace, what this epistle is really all about, I pray that we would understand it as best as we can with finite minds, uh, God, that we would grasp it, that we would receive it, Lord, uh, that you would speak to each and every person in this room, myself included, uh, God, and we would just be blown away with your grace and goodness, God. We would understand what your heart is for us specifically as we get uh, through this first half of Galatians chapter 2. So we ask for your spirit to fill us, move in us and through us, and help us to understand your word with spiritual eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so we've been going through this epistle to the Galatians. Now, it's important to understand what's going on in this region right now. You had this group of men referred to as Judaizers, okay? And what they were saying was that we're not just saved by grace. It's Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins, but you still have to keep the Mosaic law. You still have to be circumcised. You still have to keep these other man-made traditions that the Jews had developed during that time period. So this is going on in the early church. So Paul, he writes this letter to combat that, to help them understand, no, we're not saved by keeping the Mosaic law. We're not saved by keeping the law of Moses. We're not saved really by anything that we do whatsoever. It's all about grace, unearned, unearned merited favor from God. Lastly, last week, we see Paul in an effort to defend his position as an apostle, that he was truly sent out by Christ, and he wants to prove that he's an apostle so that people receive his message that his gospel is the one true gospel. It's the same gospel that Jesus preached. It's the same gospel that the apostles are preaching. He goes about arguing these things by defending his position, by looking at his history. So that last half of Galatians chapter 1 verses about 11 to 23, uh, he gives the church in the churches, multiple churches in the region of Galatia, his history. This is how it all started. Paul received the grace of God on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus got a hold of him. That was the moment of conversion. Then he goes on to tell the people in Galatia what happened after that. His point is that he didn't receive his gospel from anyone other than Jesus Christ. He didn't receive it from man. He spent very limited amount of time in Jerusalem. And we'll get into that as we enter into the text. But what we're going to see here, really in the whole chapter, Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see Paul defend the grace of God. He's literally going to fight to prove that the grace of God is true. And that's the title of this teaching, Fighting for Grace. Fighting for Grace. Now, when I say fighting for grace, I'm not saying... He's fighting to earn grace. You can't fight to earn grace. That's what grace is. It's unearned, unmerited favor from God. You cannot earn it. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that we do to deserve it. The only thing we do with grace is either reject it or receive it. So he's not fighting to earn grace. 
What I mean here is that he's fighting to defend the truth of grace. He's fighting to defend the gospel message that we are truly saved by grace through faith. It's not about our works. It's about Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Salvation cannot be earned by man. It can only be given by God. This is important. Why? Because if we're not saved by grace, there is no security in our salvation. We talked about this a little bit last week, but every other religion in the world teaches some type of works-based faith. I follow the eightfold path of Buddhism, and maybe if karma dictates, I can possibly enter into nirvana, but only if you're a Buddha. Maybe, just maybe, if I'm really good, I might come back as a priest. Or Islam, the five pillars of Islam. If I keep the five pillars of Islam, if I do A, B, C, D, and E, then maybe, not securely, maybe I'll enter into heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. We can be confident. We can be secure in our salvation. Why? Because it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus Christ did for us. He could only, he was the only one that could live a perfect life. And after living that perfect life, he died for our sins on the cross only to rise again to solidify the reason for his death and also to solidify his identity that he truly is God in the flesh. See, by Paul, Fighting for grace, he's fighting for freedom. He's fighting for their spiritual freedom. Because if salvation isn't by grace, then we aren't free. We're in bondage to sin. And we're still held accountable for our actions eternally. Meaning that one sin equates to eternity in hell. That's what the Bible teaches us. So Paul, he's fighting for the truth of grace because he wants people to first understand what salvation is really all about. And secondly, so that people can be secure in the salvation that Jesus offers. This is a lot to fight for. Let's look. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years... I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Okay, uh, he's again giving this brief history to help this these churches in Galatia understand that he only spent a limited amount of time in Jerusalem. So the little bit, a limited amount of time that he spent in Jerusalem, there's no way he could possibly have learned everything he learned about the gospel. He learned all the things that he learned about the gospel because Jesus was communicating to him directly. First on the road to Damascus, then there were other revelations to come. He says after 14 years, he's talking about 14 years after his conversion. Okay, Acts chapter 9, 14 years later, here we are. Paul's discussing his second trip to Jerusalem. To give a little history of Paul in these 14 years, at least what he tells us in, in through Luke in the book of Acts and also in this epistle to the Galatians. So Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Okay, 
After that, he tried to preach the gospel, but it wasn't very effective. He ended up going outside of Damascus in Arabia to just sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his voice. So he was there for three years. He goes back to Damascus to share the gospel. And guess what? He's still not very productive. In fact, people are trying to kill him. So what the disciples decide to do is say, hey, hey, we need to sneak him out of the city. We need to sneak him out. So after that, they send Paul back to Tarsus, his home land where he was from and he stays in tarsus for about a decade until later on in acts chapter 11 at the end of the chapter barnabas goes to tarsus to get paul why barnabas has a very fruitful ministry in antioch and the church is growing too big there's too many people so he needs help he can't feed the flock by himself so he knows he needs another teacher he brings paul there They engage in ministry. They're there for over a year. Then after that, it says at the end of Acts chapter 11, that Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. I know that's kind of a lot. You guys remember all of that, right? That's a lot to remember. But just to help us understand some of the history of Paul, it it was truly about 13 years uh, from Paul's salvation until his ministry actually took off. You know, we think about Paul the Apostle as the most powerful apostle that ever lived. And I believe that he was. God used him tremendously. He wrote half of the New Testament. He probably planted more churches than anyone. But his ministry didn't really take off for 13 years after he received the Lord Jesus Christ. See, sometimes God will call us into ministry or he'll have a a specific calling on our lives. And maybe a while back, God told you something like, hey, 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 you're to be a missionary. You're to be a pastor. You're to be a women's ministry leader. You're to be a discipler of people. And then time goes by. And then after months turn into years, we're going, I thought God said this back then, but I don't see how that's a possibility. Where I'm at now, I have a secular job. I don't really see how what God said back then really applies to me right now. What's happening? Why would God say this if he was just going to have me do this? Oftentimes, when God calls people to full-time ministry, after the calling, he takes them through a pruning season. He did this with David in the wilderness. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we see David after he was anointed as king of Israel, before he became the king, when Samuel anointed him. Next thing you know, he's fleeing from King Saul. He's running from Saul throughout the wilderness. But God was doing something specific. What? He was shaping. He was molding. He was preparing his king to be the king so that he would be ready. And then he sent him back in the wilderness when Absalom came along. But that's another story for Wednesday nights. We see it with Moses. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness. We see it with Joseph. He was enslaved, imprisoned in Egypt. And it was during that time period that God was shaping. He was molding. He was preparing his man for great things. The calling happened way back then. But none of those men were ready for the calling until many years later. Same holds true for Paul. Much time went by before Paul's ministry really took off. 
Now, this visit to Jerusalem here, there's some debate about which visit this was. Because Paul talks about four, or Luke talks about four visits that Paul has to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Now, some suggest that this visit in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1 is the visit in Acts chapter 15, which we'll get into when we get back to Acts, where they decided that the gospel was by grace. And there are a lot of connections that happen in Galatians that, that connect to Acts chapter 15, but there are also a lot of differences. And Paul, what he's telling the church in Galatia, he's only referring to his second time. His second time in Jerusalem. Acts 15 was his third time in Jerusalem. And I don't want to bore you with all these details, but this is the reason why I'm teaching this now and not later. I believe this visit to Jerusalem is just as Paul says, the second time he was there after his conversion. I'll show you. It's important for something that's going to come up later. It's Acts chapter 11. Okay, After Paul was doing ministry in Antioch, him and Barnabas uh, are there. Ministry's taken off. It says in Acts chapter 11 verse 29, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So, the disciples there in Antioch realized, hey, the church is in need in Jerusalem. And God told them, hey, collect some items and send it to the poor people that are there in Jerusalem. So it says in verse 30, this they did also, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Saul and Barnabas, they come to bring all these supplies to Jerusalem. We don't know all that it was, but Paul, he's making a point to fill in a general history of his experiences with the apostles. Why? Like I said, so that the churches know that he's not receiving his knowledge from the apostles. He's receiving his knowledge from the source, from Jesus. Christ directly. And it would almost be deceptive if Paul skipped one of the trips that he made in Jerusalem. Meaning, if it is what some suggest that it's the Acts 15 trip, then Paul's not talking about the trip that he made in Acts chapter 11. But Paul, he even says, I'm not lying. He's trying to help them fill in the gaps so that they know his story, so that they know his story is from the Lord. And there are other arguments about this. Point being, there's some debate as well. I believe that this is the trip in Acts chapter 11. Some things will line up when we get to verse 10, but let's get back to the text. We see in verse 1, two people that he mentions by name that are with him, Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas, if you recall, he was the son of encouragement that we were introduced to at the end of Acts chapter 4. He was compelled by the Lord to sell all his property and give it to the church. Uh, this guy was a pillar in the early church, a, a, a very solid leader. And as I mentioned, it was Barnabas who went and got Paul, brought him back into full-time ministry there in Acts chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas, if you were with us through Acts, they go on their first missionary journey together. This is the only missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas are together in. Later on, after Acts 15, we'll see that they part ways. But Barnabas isn't the only one that's mentioned. We see Titus as well. Who is Titus? Titus was a Greek 
convert. He was an associate of Paul. We see Titus throughout the epistles. Paul makes mention of him often. Later, we'll see that Titus becomes a pastor in Crete. So this guy's probably a pretty solid dude, or at least the word of God would imply that he is. Let's continue. It's Galatians chapter 2, verse 2. And when I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul makes it clear, I went up to Jerusalem by revelation, meaning I wasn't going up to Jerusalem to sit under the apostles and hear what they had to say about Jesus. I only went to Jerusalem because God told me to go to Jerusalem. I didn't go to Jerusalem to gain answers from men. I came to Jerusalem out of obedience to God. Why is he continue to make this point? Because some people in that region, the Judaizers specifically, accused Paul of being a second-hand apostle. Like, he wasn't really sent by Jesus. He was sent out by the church, but not really by Jesus, which wasn't true. Paul's making it true that Jesus sent him out, and the things that he's doing, uh, he's not doing them to please man or to gain knowledge for man. He's doing them because the Lord is asking him to. So, when he goes up to Jerusalem by revelation... It says he communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Paul took this opportunity to share with the early church, specifically the apostles, what God had revealed to him when Jesus came in his resurrected state on the road to Damascus and the other times that Jesus gave him revelation. Paul had many revelations. He mentions that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But as he has uh, the apostles there, uh, he, he wants to share his heart. Hey, this is what God communicated to me. This is what I see as the gospel. This is how I understand it. Are you guys on the same page? Is this how you understand understand the gospel and we'll see that they were all on the same page same gospel that jesus preached it's the same gospel that paul preached it's the same gospel that peter and john and james and the arrest of the apostles preached sometimes they put different words together but it's the same exact message paul confirms that in jerusalem but one thing he also mentions here is who god was calling him to preach to if you look back at verse two it says which i preach among the gentiles This is also significant, first of all, because you had these Judaizers saying that Gentiles had to become Jews to really be converted. If they didn't take on the Jewish customs and traditions and the Mosaic law, then they weren't true converts. Paul says, hey, that's not the gospel that I received. The gospel that I received is is by grace through faith. Nothing more, nothing less. And God told me not just to speak to Jews that were already practicing the Mosaic Law. He told me to speak to Gentiles that might not have even known about the Mosaic Law. This is interesting because God told Paul to preach to the Gentiles separately than he told Peter. What do I mean? In Acts chapter 10, Peter, he receives this vision. If you remember, there's a sheet that comes down. He's on the roof of Simon a Tanner's house. And the sheet comes down and there are all these unclean animals. 
And the Lord says to him, rise and eat. Peter goes, no, dude, there's no way I'm going to rise and eat. I've never eaten anything unclean. I've kept a kosher diet my entire life. The Lord says, basically, do what you're told. But it wasn't about what Peter ate. Jesus wasn't concerned with what was coming into Peter's mouth. He was concerned with what was going out of it. He wanted him to preach to the Gentiles. And later on, we see he has this encounter with Cornelius and a bunch of Gentiles, and they get saved. God delivered that message to Peter separately than he delivered the message to Paul that Paul was to preach to Gentiles. So it's really cool what's happening here. God's communicating to different apostles the same things at different times and in different settings. So this is what Paul is confirming with the apostles. Peter's been preaching to Gentiles as uh, other people in the church have as well. So this would have been confirmation to Peter and the others that, hey, it wasn't just Peter having this weird vision. Like, no, God's telling multiple people to preach to the Gentiles. But it says here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, As he communicates to them that gospel, uh, he says, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation. He didn't communicate this message to the whole church there in Jerusalem. He communicated to those of reputation. He's speaking of the apostles specifically. He didn't just go there and start preaching, take the pulpit and just say, hey, church in Jerusalem, this is what's going on. This is what God's saying. No, Paul had respect for the other apostles, the other leaders. And the main reason, likely, that Paul pulled these men in privately was to avoid public division. Say one of the apostles was like, hey, hey, I don't know about that. I think people still need to be circumcised. Or I still think they need to keep a kosher diet. Or maybe some of these laws apply and other ones don't anymore. They're trying to work this stuff out. Paul, he brings them into a private setting because he didn't want to publicly embarrass them. He didn't want to publicly humiliate them. He wanted them to keep their reputation, but he also wanted to make sure that they were communicating the truth of the gospel. He didn't want to cause an uproar. It wasn't about proving his point. It was about getting the truth across to the right people. Now, Paul doesn't preach to the whole church in this setting, but just to the apostles for specific reasons. There are certain things that God communicates to us that aren't to be shared with everyone. There are certain things that God will reveal to us that are just between us and God. There are other times that God reveals things to us that we're only, we should only share with certain people. This is what Paul recognizes. It's not the time to preach it to everyone. This is just first between me and God, and now between me, God, and the apostles. Sometimes we can fall into this pattern where everything we're receiving from God, we're just telling everyone. Guess what? Sometimes people aren't ready to hear what God told you. Paul recognized that. There was a certain way to go about doing this. This was first a thing, again, between him and the Lord. And secondly, something that he needed to confirm and verify with the apostles. The text goes on. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. 
circumcision, if you remember, it was instituted by God uh, with Abraham. And it signified the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that he was going to bless his seed. And the nation that came through him will be a father of many nations. And part of that promise was that he would grant him the promised land. This was a sign that they were under the covenant that God had promised Abraham. So Jews were ordered to get circumcised, obviously males, on the eighth day after they were born. It was supposed to be on the eighth day. They were to be circumcised, and this signified that they were under the same covenant that God made with Abraham. We'll get more into circumcision later on in Galatians and get to the heart of it, but the point here is he's saying that Titus didn't feel compelled to get circumcised because he was a Greek. The Judaizers were saying, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, Savior, accept him as the Messiah, but you also need to be circumcised and you need to keep the kosher diet and you need to do all these different things for your uh, salvation to be solidified. So the Judaizers, they're going to question the salvation of Titus, not because he hasn't changed, not because God hasn't done a, a radical work in his life, not because there's no fruit in his life. They question Solely on the basis that he's not circumcised. It was all this external thing and they weren't looking at the heart, the internal and all that God had done through the person of Titus. See, the Judaizers, they thought that they could improve the gospel. They thought that if they added to it, they could make it better. But guess what? The gospel cannot be improved. It can only be corrupted. And how is it corrupted? It's corrupted when we start adding to the gospel. For example, I accepted the Lord as my savior. I confessed my sins. He came into my heart. But if I want to be secure in my salvation, I better, I better make sure. I don't know if I'm saying, I better read my Bible every day. I better pray. I better serve in the church. I better do all these different things. Not, not that there's anything wrong with doing those things, but it's all about the heart behind why you're doing those things. We don't read our Bible to be saved. We don't uh, serve in the church to be saved. We don't get plugged into a home group to be saved. If we do those things, it should be something out of the heart, a response of our salvation, a response to the grace of God. Not that I have to do A, B, C, and D to really be saved. It's just A. I just need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and allow Him to continue to do that work in my heart and change me from the inside out, not the outside in. They were adding to the gospel, which was corrupting the gospel. When we add to the gospel or take truths away from the gospel, then it's no longer the gospel. It's a different gospel. And this is what Paul is trying to hit home. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If we add anything to that or take anything away from those basic truths that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he died on a cross for our sins, but he rose the third day, 
if we start messing with those basic truths and adding other contingencies, then we're sharing a different gospel, just as the Judaizers were. Yeah, Jesus died and rose, but you also have to be circumcised. What's interesting here is that though there are these Judaizers stirring up all kinds of trouble, implementing legalism in the church that was founded on grace, we see the early church fathers, the apostles, they recognized that Titus, his salvation was legitimate. They received Titus as a brother in the faith. He doesn't have to be circumcised to be saved. He just needs to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. This shows us and showed Paul that the early church accepted the gospel of grace, not the gospel of grace plus works, plus circumcision, plus the Mosaic law. No, the gospel of grace. They didn't look at Titus as an outcast, though he was an uncircumcised Gentile. See, through the gospel, God sees us all the same. Now, I'm speaking of value, not personality or anything like that. Through the gospel, we're all on an equal level playing field. Whether Greek or Jew, whether man or woman, whether you're a pastor or an elder or you just got saved two seconds ago, we're all the same. God has the same value for each and every one of us. So it doesn't matter that these guys are apostles and Titus is an uncircumcised Jew. God God has just as much favor on Titus, has just as much love for Titus as he does for the apostles. Paul's point and mentioning Titus and his circumcision was that he recognized, recognized, Titus recognized, the early church recognized that Titus didn't need to be circumcised to be saved. Circumcision was an Old Testament thing. It's not a new covenant thing. Now that doesn't mean that it's wrong to get your kids circumcised. But it's wrong if you think getting your son circumcised is going to save them. Okay, that's the heart. It's not just about what we're doing, but the heart behind why we're doing it. And that's why Titus didn't feel compelled to do it. I don't want to sell them a false gospel and I get circumcised uh, so that they think that I'm saved. No, Paul nor Titus were trying to please man. They were simply trying to get the truth of the gospel across. See, no longer... <clears throat> Are we marked for God by the mutilation of our flesh? We're marked for God by the blood of the Lamb. Our blood no longer needs to be spilled because His blood was. It's not the mutilation of our flesh. It was the mutilation of His flesh. That's how we are saved. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. The lack of circumcision was an issue for the Judaizers. They questioned Titus's salvation because they questioned Titus's salvation because they preached you need to be circumcised and Jesus, Jesus and the law, 
Paul refers to them as false brethren. Why? They're false brethren because they're sharing a false gospel. And this is true. And this is heavy. Just as I mentioned, when we start adding to the gospel of grace or we start taking it taking away from the gospel of grace, Jesus wasn't really God or he didn't die on the cross or he didn't really rise. When we take or add from that, Paul says, you're false brethren. Why? Because you're believing in a false gospel. See, to be a child of God, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, to be a child of God, we must believe in the one whom he sent. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we become children of God. So if we're putting our faith in a different Jesus Christ or a different gospel, then we're entering into a different family. It's not the family of God, it's the family of the false brethren, Paul tells us. See, the false brethren... These Judaizers were trying to bring the church backwards, trying to bring them back under the law, back under the old covenant. This is point number one. Don't go back to the old way. Don't go back to the old way. This wasn't just a problem in the early church. This was a problem during Jesus Christ's ministry. It's also a problem in the church today. I love how Jesus says this. It's in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, verses 37 to 39, he talks about old wineskins, new wineskins, and how different types of wine. Um, well, let's read it. Luke chapter 5, verse 37, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. What's Jesus saying here? Well, let me help us understand this a little bit more culturally, okay? So wineskins, they typically used goat skin. Now, if you have new wine and you pour it into this uh, goat skin container, uh, the new wine, it's got to ferment. And when it, ferment, it ferments, it expands. So if you have new wine skin, you put new wine in there, that's fine because the new wine skin, it, it's flexible. It's going to expand with the wine. But he says... If you put new wine into old wineskin, what happens? It's going to burst. He's speaking of their hearts, and he's speaking to the religious leaders. See, an old wineskin, it would get hard. It would get brittle. It wasn't easy to change. It wasn't very flexible. The new wine is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, the new way of doing things, no longer under the burden of the law, but... The gift of joy, the gift of grace. Jesus is saying, hey, if I pour this new wine into your cold, bitter, hard hearts, you won't be able to take it. It'll simply burst. Their hearts are hard. They're brittle. They're frail. They're cold because they're stuck in the old way. They want to continue doing things the way they always did. It's not that there's something wrong with their culture, but when their culture contradicts the words of Jesus Christ, then it is wrong. The Judaizers wanted to go back to the old way of doing things. They were comfortable with the old way. It meant that they could trust in their works and not have to trust in God. They've been living this way their whole lives. Sometimes... We can do this as well. 
when people first come to Jesus, or maybe even years after they come to Jesus, it's like, yeah, I like this Jesus guy, right? Like, he died for my sins, there's forgiveness, there's grace, there's all these things that Christ offers me, there's this new life, but... I like the old way of doing things. I like my old life. So maybe I can make a deal with Jesus where I hold on to the old way of doing things and I accept the new way that he's offering. Jesus says it's impossible. If you accept the new way and you're stuck on the old way, you're going to burst. Why? Because when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, he takes our old, hard, wine-skinned heart and he makes it soft. He makes it flexible. He makes it open for change because that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to change the heart. He's not going to change a hard heart. It has to be softened and he'll chip away at it, do everything that he can to mold, to shape, to do the work in that heart that only he can do. Sometimes people go, I want Jesus, but I still want to sleep with my girlfriend. Uh, I, I want Jesus, but I still want to go out on the weekends. Uh, I want Jesus, but I still want to hold on to this job that I know I shouldn't have. I want Jesus, but I want the old way too. Jesus says you can't have both. Pick one. Pick one or the other. Because new wine cannot be poured into old wineskins, or the wineskin's going to burst. I got a new way for you, but this way, it's going to look like me coming into your heart and changing some things, not just for my glory, but also for your benefit. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do in our hearts and our lives. But sadly, so often we get stuck in the old way. But I like these things. I like my old sin. I like everything that was surrounded with this lifestyle. Jesus says, with that mentality, you can't receive the new wine. You can't receive the joy that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we receive the, when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're inviting him to come change the old wineskin. We're inviting him to do a mighty work in our hearts. See, the Judaizers, they weren't up for this. They wanted Jesus, but they wanted the old way as well. Speaking of these men, look what he says here in Galatians chapter 2. verse 4 and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty he's literally using spy words (laughs) in the greek these are like they're legitimate spies uh this is how sneaky and crafty these people were what do we know about spies most people don't know spies are spies, right? That's the point. If, if people know the spies are spies, then they're not doing the job, right? So these people in the church, you would look at them and go, they're a believer. They love Jesus Christ. Like they got it. They're serving. They lead the some ministry in the church. They do nursery. They do all these different things. It's not like they were out smoking and saying, hey, we're, we're spies. No, Paul realizes that they're spies because he had discernment and he picked up on some things that they believed that didn't line up with the word of God. And he says, these men are spying out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. There's liberty in the new covenant. There's liberty offered through the gospel. But there's bondage in the old way of doing things. There's bondage 
when we consider the law. There's bondage when we're under the burden of the law. Why? Because we cannot keep it. We're literally carrying a weight of 613 Levitical laws that we cannot keep. Maybe sometimes we can keep some of them, but not all of them all the time. See, Paul knew this was a threat. He recognized that if we start adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're putting ourselves back into the bondage of the law. And it doesn't just affect uncircumcised Gentiles. It affects the circumcised Jews as well. It affects everyone. When we add to the gospel again, we're not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're accepting a different gospel. Paul is concerned for their liberties as they spy out our liberty. He doesn't want to go back to bondage. He wants us to be free in Christ. But freedom is only an option if grace is the solution. Okay, Freedom is only an option if grace is the solution. Grace is the solution to salvation. It's by grace that Jesus came. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He died a death that we deserve. And he rose again, something none of us can do. And through that, we're offered salvation. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He solved the problem of death and hell and pain and suffering on the cross. That's the solution. But freedom is only an option If that is the solution, what do I mean? If we aren't saved by grace, if it's not about what Jesus did for us, but it's about what we do for him, then there's no freedom to be had. There is no freedom. Grace precedes freedom. What do I mean by that? See, the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 6, I believe it's in verse 16. Uh, in, in, in a lot of the chapter, he talks about this. He, he talks about slavery. He talks about bondage. The Bible teaches us that no matter what we think, we're slaves to something. Okay? We're slaves to something. Prove me wrong on that. I'd love to have that conversation. We're slaves to something. That's what the Bible says. We're either slaves of sin leading to death or we're slaves of righteousness leading to life. Let me break it down. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Jesus Christ. Okay? Our preconceived notions about freedom are usually false, okay? The only freedom we can have in this life is by enslaving ourselves to Christ, which that's real freedom. Why? Because he knows what we need more than we know what we need. He wants things, he wants better things for us than we even want for ourselves. And if you're truly honest with yourself, before you accepted Jesus Christ, if you look back, you can recognize the bondage that you were in. Let me ask you. What was leading you before you accepted Jesus Christ? Because the Bible says you were bound to something, some form of sin. Maybe it was your desire to be successful. Maybe it was sexual desires. Maybe it was addiction. Maybe it was control. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was lust. Maybe it was envy. The Bible says, apart from Jesus Christ, we're in bondage to sin. Jesus offers to free us from that bondage, not just the consequences of our sin, not just the eternal consequences of our sin, but he offers to free us of the bondage. Say, hey, you don't have to be a slave to this stuff anymore. You can be a slave to me. You can be a slave to righteousness, which leads to life. But that freedom came at a cost. 
our freedom cost Jesus his life. Without the grace of God that we see through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no freedom to be had. This is why Paul speaks of freedom. He knows if we deny the grace of God, then we're no longer free. We're back in bondage. That's why he says they're spying out our liberty. Because if they make the gospel about something that it isn't, if they add to the gospel all these works that need to be done, then not only is the gospel not about grace, but we're still bound in our sin. We're still have a one-way ticket headed towards hell. This is why this is so important that we understand the gospel is about grace. Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says, dude, we didn't even give in for an hour. We we didn't give in to the demands of the Judaizers. No, we fought for the truth. And this is point number two, only three points today. Fight for the truth. Fight for the truth. Paul is fighting for the truth of the gospel. He's fighting for the grace of God. See, sometimes... We can just give into the lies of this world, okay? Uh, let me ask you. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they said something that was way off? Maybe it was about Jesus. Maybe it was just about something. Uh, instead of communicating the truth, you just nodded your head. Okay, yeah. Why? Because you don't want confrontation? That's what Paul's talking about here. He mentions man-pleasing in, in verse 10. He's saying, I wasn't trying to please man. I was firm in communicating the truth. I didn't care if people liked me or disliked me, if they hated me, if they stoned me. I was firm in communicating the truth of the gospel because I know what's at stake. We're called to fight for the truth of the word of God. We're called to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. This wasn't just a problem for Paul This was a problem for all the leaders in the church. Jude talks about it. He says it like this in Jude uh, verse 3 and 4. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible just before Revelation. I'm already there, so I'll read it for you. Jude chapter, Jude verse 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting You to contend earnestly for the faith. He says, fight for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a problem that was going on then. It's a problem that goes on now. People are trying to turn the gospel into something else. There's so many lies in this world. Why? Because the God of this world, the God of this age, Satan, he's been a liar from the beginning. And from the beginning, he's attacked the truth of God's word. Remember, he said it to Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Are you sure that God really said these things? See, the world will attack the truth of God's word. That's why it's so important for us to defend it. But to defend it, we got to know it. 
We can't fight for something that we don't know. We can't fight for something that we don't at least have some type of understanding of. This is why it's so important for us to purpose to understand the truth of God's word so that we can defend it. So when the world tells you that abortion is okay and there's nothing wrong with it and it's not really murder because the child couldn't survive on its own. Or this person says this and this person says that. Or you really weren't created in the image of God. You're a fluke. You're, you're just a byproduct of chaos and confusion. Your life doesn't really matter. It doesn't really mean anything. So when people say these things, you go, dude, that's a lie. That's not true. Fight for the truth. There's a lot at stake. As I mentioned... Sometimes we can fall into those conversations where people just start saying outlandish things that are so contrary to God's truth. And because of this man-pleasing nature we have, we just, yeah, okay. Even if I don't agree, I'm just going to say, yeah, because I don't want to have a conflict. I don't want to cause commotion. Don't be that person. Stand firm in the truth. Now, I'm not saying get in a bunch of debates with people and prove them wrong. No, no, no. It's all about the heart, speaking the truth and love. But I'll share something actually happened right here on property. Somebody told me um, that they were Jesus, that they were actually Jesus. And uh, I was listening to him before he said that. And I said, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not Jesus because you wouldn't have to tell me that because Jesus says uh, that nobody's going to have to tell you that I'm here. I'm just going to be here. Every eye will see me. You'll know it's him. If people have to tell you the second coming happened, they're a liar. Jesus says you will know uh, every eye is going to see him and they are going to recognize that he truly is king of kings and lord of lords. Bottom line, this it'd be easy to just go, okay, Jesus. Yeah, no. Like, I know you're not Jesus, and, and we didn't get into an altercation or anything like that. And you probably won't have a lot of people tell you that they're Jesus. I don't know. That was the first time I experienced that. But sometimes when people spit these lies in your ear, influenced by the world, that the grace of God is something different than it is, that Jesus Christ was someone different than he is. We have a moral obligation, a biblical obligation to defend the truth, to fight for the truth, but to fight for it and defend it, we have to know it. Paul, he knew it and he was able to fight for it. But look what it says here. He says that the, verse five, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He doesn't say a truth. He says the truth. Paul's not fighting for a truth. Well, this is how I see things. You're not saying, this is, no, he's saying this is, this is how God sees things. This is the truth. The gospel isn't just a truth. It's the truth. In fact, it's either the truth or it's not true at all. It's one or the other. Why? Because truth, by definition, is exclusive. It's absolute. Something either is true or it's not. We live in an era of relativism that people say, whatever's true to you is great. Whatever's true to me. If I believe that I'm this certain type of person, uh, that's cool because it's true to me. And if you believe something different about me or about you, that's fine too. Just believe whatever you want to believe. And your belief in something makes it true. That is the biggest lie I've ever heard in my life. But people say it. Our belief in something doesn't make something true. Something's either true or not. Either we believe the truth or we believe a lie. Paul is saying, I'm fighting for the truth. It's the truth. Why is Paul fighting for the truth? Because he's concerned about their freedom. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 8 verse 32. In John 8 32 he says, And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. 
He wants them to know the truth so that they can be free. Apart from the truth, there is no freedom. And he says here, we'll finish this last section uh, a lot faster than the first. He says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He's not fighting to prove himself wrong, right? He's not fighting because he wants them to take his opinion on the matter. He's fighting for them. He's not concerned about them validating his opinion. He's concerned for their salvation. He's fighting for the truth for their benefit. The text continues, Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Paul doesn't mention any of them by name. He says, I don't know who these guys are. All I know is that they were enemies of freedom. They were enemies of the grace of God. They were enemies of the truth of the gospel. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Paul had a specific calling to the Gentiles. He spoke to Jews as well, but his calling was to the Gentiles. And Peter, his calling specifically was to the Jews. They realize that when they're having this meeting in Jerusalem, there's further clarity as to what these two men are specifically called to. But their calling can only be fulfilled if verse 8 is true. He says, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Paul's saying, it's not about my background. It's not about my education. It's not about my smarts. It's not about my wits. It's not about my humor. It's not about anything I bring to the table. The only reason my ministry is effective because of who is, who is working in me. He says, because God is working in me and God is working in Peter, this is why our ministries are effective and will continue to be effective. The effectiveness of the messenger is completely dependent on the power and author of the message. Paul makes that clear. Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that they had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So you got some significant men here. James, the brother of Jesus. You have Cephas, also called Peter. Uh, Jesus, when he first met Peter in John chapter 1, verse 42, he says, your name is Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. Now we see Simon being referred to as Cephas. Why? Because God did a miraculous work in him. He's no longer Simon the arrogant, Simon the prideful, Simon the fearful. He's Cephas. He's a rock. He's stable. He's consistent. He's a pivotal leader in the early church. We also see John. John, the one who Jesus loved, the one who wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. He was a pivotal disciple as well, so much so that Paul says, who seemed to be pillars. Jesus used these men to build the church. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, uh, in verse 18, 
Jesus makes a promise that I will build my church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's not talking about Peter the rock. He's talking about himself as the rock. Peter is a rock. Jesus is the rock. And he speaks specifically of what Peter said. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven on this truth of who Jesus Christ is, the son of God and what he did for us through his death and resurrection. That is the foundation of the church. So if people are saying something to take away from that, that Jesus wasn't the son of God, that he's an angel or something uh, less, that he didn't die on a cross or he didn't rise from the dead, then that's not his church. He says, I'm going to build the foundation of my church on these basic truths, who I am and what I came to do. But Jesus, he didn't do it alone. He used these men. These men were pillars. He used the early church. He used the apostles specifically to build the foundation of the church. See, God, he wants to use men and women to build his church. These apostles, though they had nothing to offer but willingness, God used them miraculously. Look what it says here in verse 9, almost there. So these Pillars in the faith. James, Cephas, and John seem to be pillars. Perceived the grace that had been given to me. Third and final point. Grace received is grace perceived. Grace received is grace perceived. They saw the grace of God in Paul. Just by interacting with him. Just by having conversations with him. Just by spending time with him. They they saw the grace of God. Like there was something special about Paul. Now that he's been converted by Jesus Christ. They sense the grace. They sense the love. They sense the mercy. They sent the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through this man. It wasn't just about what he said. It was about the demeanor that he carried. They saw Christ in him, the hope of glory. When people interact with you, do they see the grace of God in your life? Do they see fruit? Do you even have to tell them that you're a Christian? Not that it's bad to tell people that you're a Christian, but would people pick up on it that you're different just by spending some time with you? Would they see a difference in behavior, a difference in demeanor? Would they hear uh, a different language, Uh, maybe no cussing, uh, maybe more edifying speech, whatever the case may be? Because the Bible teaches us that people should be able to perceive the grace of God in us. They should be able to see God's grace through our lives. This is Not just here in Galatians chapter 2, but we also see it back in Acts chapter 4. I'll read it for you real quick. He says, this is Peter and John after they healed the man outside the temple. In verse 13 it says, Now when they, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, so these aren't believers, says now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus, uneducated, untrained, but there was something very special about them. There was something very different. They saw Christ in them. They saw the character of Christ, the boldness, the grace, the love, the truth, all these different things. Do people see Christ in you, the hope of glory? Are you reflecting his image? I'm not saying perfectly, we're not Jesus, but there's a reality. When we accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he starts doing things in our life and, and, and portraying character and helping us bear fruit. Uh, so I had a 
So I had this uh, plumber come over the other day because we had like a little bit of water damage, it looks like. Anyone a plumber in here? No, we can talk after service. So there's a little bit of water damage on our, on our roof uh, or on the second floor. Uh, and so I called uh, I called this guy. He, he came. Um, and uh, so I'm talking to him. He's real helpful and he's not going to charge me. Uh, he's not, he's like, man, I, I don't want to charge you anything. Cause I just gave you some advice. Um, if I fix it, I'll have to charge it but here. This is a simple how to fix it. I'm not like a very handyman. Um, pray for me. Um, so I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, it's Wednesday. So we have service at nighttime. I'm like, man, I'm busy. Like I have so much to do right now. And I just feel like as I'm talking to this guy, Lord knocking on my heart, you need to ask him where you're from. I'm like, shh, shh. You need to ask him where he's from. I'm like, I don't have time for this right now. And I just had this sense he was from El Salvador. And I used to live in El Salvador. And I was like, uh, I was like, dear God, come on. I don't have time for this right now. And, and then sure enough, like towards the end, I'm like, hey, man, where are you from? He goes, Central America. I go, where? He goes, El Salvador. I'm like, hmm, interesting. I spent time down there. And I started telling him about like the ministry experiences that I had down there. He's telling me his history uh, in, in El Salvador and why he left. Some wild stuff happened. Uh, you're seeing people getting shot and killed and all these different things. Uh, and and we're, we're talking about like, you know, I'm talking about Jesus and just, uh, you know, everything that the Lord was doing down there. And, uh, and, and he starts like, He's looking at me and he's like, okay, he had to go and he's like, man, I, I, this is why I didn't charge you. <laughs> he said, I knew there was something different when I came into this house. I just felt a presence. It made me want to cry. And I don't know what it was. I'm like, man, it's just the Holy Spirit. It's not me. It's not my wife. It's the Holy Spirit. You're just sensing it. He perceived the grace of God. It almost brought him to tears. It made him emotional. That's not me. That's not you. That's the grace of God working through us. That's what they're seeing in Paul. See, man, we perceive the grace of God. It's moving my heart just seeing your demeanor, the words that you're saying, the expressions that you're making, the way that you're carrying yourself. So through this conversation and then perceiving the grace of God, it says that they gave him and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. They trusted him with even more ministry. You guys are on point. We're going to send you to preach to more Gentiles. And the church in Jerusalem would continue to focus primarily on sharing the gospel with Jews. This is where we'll close verse 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. This is most likely referring to the reason why Paul and Barnabas came here, uh, because they came for the poor, if it is specifically the trip in Acts chapter 11. But the point of this is, is that Paul, he fought for the grace of God, and he won the argument. He, he proved that God's grace is legit. It is real. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. And because Paul's boldness, because he received the grace of God and communicated the grace of God, other people got to receive the grace of God and communicate the grace of God. Paul had something to fight for. He's fighting for the truth. He's defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people were radically saved and radically changed because of Paul's boldness. Because he chose to do what God was asking him to do. He chose to be a man that purposed to please God in the face of adversity. He purposed to please God even when people disliked him, persecuted him, even stoned him. He wasn't doing this for himself. As he says in verse 5, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He was doing this for other people. He was fighting for the grace. 
fighting for grace so that other people could experience salvation. See, our fight for grace, our defense of the truth could lead to others experiencing the grace of God, could lead to others experiencing salvation. But before we can fight for it, we got to know it. Do you know the grace of God? Do you struggle with legalism? Do you believe salvation is something that you can earn? Because that's not the gospel. That's the different gospel. And that's the false gospel that this church was struggling with. When we know the grace of God, we'll automatically be compelled to fight for it, to defend it, and to share it with others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this uh, epistle. God, the radical work that you did in Paul's life and, and that we're, uh, we're left in awe, uh, but you offer the same grace that you did Paul. It's not different. Uh, Lord, so I just pray that everyone in this room would experience your grace, that they would receive it. God, that's the only thing we can do with it, reject it or receive it. So I pray that we would be people that receive it. And as we receive it and we understand it, we would defend it. We would fight for it. When people say things about you that aren't true, when people try to twist uh, your grace and making it something that it's not, so that it's grace and works, it doesn't even make sense. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness to continue uh, to, to share uh, your truth, God, the truth of the gospel, that we were saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves, uh, Lord. So we thank you so much for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.